Wondering how you can help and support the I Am Necessary podcast platform? Well, there are a few ways. One, just by listening, really helps to enhance and boost everything that needs to be enhanced with this platform. Number two, if you're listening on Apple, iTunes, or Google, please leave a review and rate the show. That also improves the credibility of this podcast. And finally, you can go to anchor.fm slash I am necessary. That's anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash I am necessary. Scroll down just a little bit, find the support button, click support, and there will be instructions on how you can have a sponsorship anywhere from 99 cents a month to 9.99 per month to help boost this podcast and this platform okay so thank you so much for taking the time to listen to me i really appreciate it and with that being said let's start the show Hello and welcome to the I Am Necessary Podcast. As always, this and is your guy, today, Marcel. I have the pleasure of talking to another one of my guys. His name is William Bottomley. That's his formal name. We call him Will, or we call him Doc B. So, Will is a doctor. So, his official title is D.O. So, he's a doctor of osteopathic medicine. So, what's up, man? Not a whole lot. Appreciate <laughs> me on the show. Yeah, I listened to some of the listened to some of the podcasts before me, so I, I I have some pretty high standards to live up to on some of these topics you got going. <laughs> but I'll do my best. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. So I wanted to have you on, not necessarily to throw you into pandemia and all that stuff. All that stuff has pretty much been covered. But I always had a fascination with doctors you know and what that looks like and how you become one because if people met you and they saw us playing golf or something like that i don't know if there's a look that a doctor has they would not peg you as they would peg you as just a regular cool dude not necessarily a doctor so i don't know if that's a compliment or a dig or what but that's just <laughs> what it is so um how long have you been a doctor so i graduated medical school in 2014 okay so I technically been a doctor for six years. Three of those years was residency, so I've been practicing on my own for three years. Okay. And residency, for people who don't know, what does that mean? So residency is just it's just like uh, it's intensive training. So medical school, you everybody gets <clears throat> the same education, and then. But obviously, there's all doctors are different. You got myself. I'm a family doctor. You got uh, obstetricians. You got surgeons. You got cardiologists. You know, you name it. There's a specialty for it. And so, once you finish medical school, you ha then have to go do a residency to prepare you to be whatever specialty physician that you choose to see. Okay. And residency. What is that technically? So this would be equivalent to the minor leagues. Yeah, you could say that. So, 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 say coming out of medical school, you, I, I want to be a family doctor, and so, your family doctor, you got to kind of be a generalist. You got to know a little bit about everything, and you do the be you do as much as you can. But if you run out of, you know, your, you get out of your scope or out of your ability, then you have to send somebody to a specialist. So my training was kind of, you know, the majority of it is to take care of your general patient. You know, you get sick, you come see me in the office. You develop hypertension, you come see me in the office. And so we kind of 
month to month for three years, go through different programs. You know, say one month I'm with a heart doctor, cardiologist, and I'm learning how to do treat cardiac patients. Another month I'm with a surgeon, kind of learning how to do general surgery type stuff. But the majority of it is just in your outpatient clinic, you know, bread and butter medicine, Mm -hmm. you know, what you think of as a general doctor. Now, if you want to do a little bit more specialty, you want, say you want to be a cardiologist, those guys, they got to do three years of general medicine in the hospital setting, and then they have to do another three years of what's called a fellowship in cardiology to then become a cardiologist. So where I only have to train in residency for three years, they got to do six years. And then even more, you got some guys, neurosurgeons, those guys, I mean, they do up to seven and eight years of residency training. So that's it's just a further training beyond medical school before you can really be considered, you know, a, an independent practicing physician. So is it kind of like, you know, going to college and your your first two years, you take just liberal arts or you take basic uh, price of entry classes. And then once you take those, get those knocked out, you start getting into your specialty? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. You gotta learn. You gotta learn to crawl before you can walk, and right. you gotta learn to walk before you can sprint. So, Family Guy, pretty much a quarterback or the air traffic that's, controller. That's a pretty good way to put it. I had not <laughs> thought of that. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it pretty much when it boils down to it, everything kind of starts. Any disease process, at least as far as the evaluation and workup, should theoretically start with the family doctor. Mm-hmm. And a patient comes in tells you what's going on, you and then the workup starts from there. So you kind of have to have a broad understanding of everything and do, you know, control the field, I guess you could say, until you can no longer do any more work for that person and then pass it off to to the person that gets to score the touchdown. Okay, now that makes sense. Now what makes, let's talk about you specifically, when did you know that you wanted to be in medicine? That's a good question, too. I, to be honest, when I graduated college, a degree in biology, I had I had no interest in becoming a doctor. I hadn't really even thought about it, to be honest with you. I, I was always pretty good at science and interested in biology and chemistry and all that kind of stuff. It came naturally to me. My dad was a scientist. I was always good at it. And I always knew, kind of had an interest in that field as a career, because it came naturally to me, but I never even considered medicine as an undergrad. It wasn't until after I graduated and, you know, I kind of had a little time to sit down and like, okay, you're, you know, 22 years old, got a degree in biology, what can you do with that? (laughs) And so I was kind of just following in my father's footsteps, you know, science came natural. I watched him, you know, he was a scientist uh, for over 40 years in the university setting, and that kind of was the path I was kind of following down. But once I finished undergrad, I, you know, I had some time to to reflect and kind of, I did some traveling uh, internationally, and, and I just started to kind of see little parts of myself that, you know, at the time it didn't necessarily say, oh, yep, we're going to go be a doctor because of this, but there were just some things that I, you know, started thinking about and saw throughout the world and in our country in the states that you know kind of just over a year or two time period it kind of led to this kind of developing thought process of like you know i think maybe be it maybe going into medicine will be what you're calling and 
so from the beginning, even before I got into medical school, I kind of always had a feeling that I wanted to be a family doctor just because it would allow me to kind of have a broad scope of use. You know, you can, you, you're kind of like you always talk about building your suit of armor. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a family doc's armor is it's thin, but it covers your whole body. So you, you can deal with a lot of different things as opposed to you know, some specialists, their armor is, you know, an inch thick, you're not going to penetrate it. it. You know, they are fortified, but it, they got gaps in there that you can't, they can't cover everything. Right, jack of all trades. Exactly. So you didn't, in biology class in high school, when you was dissecting the frog, that wasn't, that wasn't the trigger for you. <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all, not at all. So and that's, that's why I didn't go into surgery. <laughs> what makes one doctor better than another in the same field? That's a tough question. I, you know, I never like to call one doctor good, one doctor bad, but there definitely are better doctors than others. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, you know, everybody, the first thing most people think about when they think of a doctor is, okay, I want the smartest doctor that there is because he's gonna, if, I, if that one's smarter than this one, I want the smart one. And nobody wants a doctor that doesn't know what, the, what they're doing and that isn't smart, mm-hmm. but... So that's one component to it, but I I would argue that the bigger component is you know the doctor's empathy and and the, the doctor's real motivation about why they are doing what they're doing because you can have the smartest doctor in the state in the country in the world, but if that guy's just book smart and he really care about the patient, he's just doing it for you know for the fame or for whatever reason. But at the end of the day, if they're not if they don't have the patient best interest in mind, they're not going to be the best doctor. The best doctor is the one who, A, has the smarts, and B, has the empathy and has the humanity and the humility to, you know, overlook his own ego and his own prowess and really, at the at the end of the day, do what's best for the patient. And that's tough coming from the patient's perspective because a patient is really not educated on all these things that you're talking about. So... From the patient's perspective, it's a little tougher because I want to trust my doctor. So, like, I personally, it's a feel for me. And sometimes I do my due diligence. Like, time when I went to the doctor, I saw I had an MRI for something. And they said, uh, yeah, your brain is great, but, oh, you have this small tumor in the side of your face. So I'm like, well, wait, okay, well, what does that mean? And it's weird because when you go through the conveyor belt, to your point, this MRI guy said, yeah, you have a tumor in the side of your face. Good luck with that. Because now I'm out of his scope. <laughs> right? So I'm like, okay, so what do I do? He's like, well, I don't know. Call your, go back to the quarterback. He'll tell you, <laughs> you probably need to see uh, ENT. But as far as his work, it was done. So now I'm like, well, what ENT do I go to? Do I take my, do I talk to my primary and say, hey, can you put me in a, what do you call it, a referral? And then how does that work? Yeah. Does he just find someone yeah. in network or, hey, go to this guy because I hear he's kind of good. And then I go to this ENT and when I call the general number, they say, okay, we're going to put you up with Dr. Santorelli. So I go right online and Google Dr. Santorelli, right? Like, what are people saying about him? And I know there's not going to be, you're not going to get five stars because that's a red flag right there. So if someone, if I need surgery and someone gave him one star, well, why? Well, because he was late to the appointment or because he didn't have pretty good bedside manner. But 
I mean, I don't have a scar on my face after the surgery. So to me, okay, I don't, you don't have to be my friend. But when it comes to the actual work that I'm trying to see you for, I need you to be the best at that. And sometimes people get lost in that world. Like, I don't know. They're a doctor. They're all doctors. So I should be able to trust each and every one of them. So sometimes you have to kind of do your homework. And from your perspective, when someone is choosing, let's say, a family physician, what are just some basic things they should, questions they should ask or things they should look for? Yeah, you make a good point, you know, as far as the average patient, you know, really having not really a great understanding of how the whole kind of medical world revolves. And it can be a very frustrating task for people to, to go through, especially, like you said, in that case where the doctor says, hey, you got a tumor. Well, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> and now you tell somebody they got a tumor in their head, but you didn't tell them anything else. And now they got to wait, you know, because it's out of your spectrum and you, you pass the buck to the next one. You got Now you got a patient waiting two weeks to see their primary, mm-hmm. thinking they, you know, for all they know, they've got a tumor in their head that's going to kill them. And mm-hmm. they really don't know that it's probably nothing to worry about. But because it's out of their scope, they didn't want to bother, you know, educating the patient about that. Now you got patients that are, you know, in these positions where they're very stressed and upset and then they show up back at their primary office kind of with their hands in the air going what the hell's going on right so there is to the point of the ent you know he uh he did a very good job getting rid of that tumor and it goes back to i like to hit the point where you know going back to my point of you know there's this book smart doctors and then there's the empathetic doctors and I try to tell, one of the main things I tell patients, too, is, you know, look, every, everybody's different. Now, I'm a family doctor. I talk to people all day long. I'm pretty good at it. I'm pretty easygoing. I'm, I try to be easy to talk to. I try to explain things. But there are doctors, you know, surgeons, this and that, specialists, that they, they are busy. They don't have a lot of time to talk to you. And like you said, he's there to get that tumor out of your neck, mm-hmm. do the best he can. And you don't really care if he's going to be your buddy at the end of the day. And some patient, you know, I hear a lot of people complain, well, he had horrible bedside manner and he didn't even crack a smile or this or that. But, you know, I, so I asked him, but did he, did he, did he get the tumor out of your head? Right. You know, were there complications? So he may not have been the most friendly dude, but he did a really good job. And, and I tell people, look, you know, if a doctor does a good job, that's a good doctor. He doesn't have to be cracking jokes and right. be your best friend and have a drink with you. But the fact that he did a good job and he's worked hard at his honing his skills and building his armor, that makes him a good doctor, even if he maybe wasn't the mo- the best bedside. So when you give him a you give him a one star, that's doing a disservice to the people coming behind you because right. he probably does a pretty good job. Yeah. Now, do you do you have a primary physician? <laughs> Well, they always say uh, doctors make the worst patients. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I'm 37 years old, and I damn well should have a primary doctor. And at this point in my life, I do not. Okay. And now, what about your family? You know, when someone in your family gets sick, how often do you say, well, let me take a look, versus, okay, well, <laughs> go see your doctor? Yeah, I, uh, I think for the most part, people at least in my circle you know they they almost feel too cautious about doing that 
because I think people in general, they don't want to be a bother or feel like they're a burden or a bother to somebody in their family circle or friend circle based on their employment. Mm-hmm. But so I don't get it too often. But when I do, it doesn't bother me too much. And I do the best I can to answer their questions. As far as the family goes, I'll treat I've treated my kids for a few ear infections here and there, but I've been fortunate and blessed to not have anything major come up to where I've had to really make a big decision on, okay, you got to go see the doctor because this is, you know, not appropriate for me to do. But so here it happens here and there, but I think in general, most people feel pretty comfortable having small questions and asking for advice versus, you know, okay, this is something we should really take to our own doctor. Yeah, because, you know, I've been in that crowd, too, like, hey, I don't know what this is. And because I remember when my daughter was sick and I was texting you all kinds of things like, hey, I got to, you know, let me see what's going on. But the funny thing is when you're in a profession like yours, when I grew up, there was a guy who worked at uh, an auto body shop. He was a mechanic. So when you have a profession like a mechanic or like a doctor, it's kind of crazy because once people find out that's what you do, you are never off the clock. If you're on an airplane and someone knows you're a doctor and something happens on that airplane, they're going to look, hey, this guy, you know, when I was at check-in, you know, we were small talking and he said he was a doctor. So now, hey, excuse me, um, Mr. Bottomley, can you come take a look? Have you ever been in a situation where you saw someone get injured and you had to question was should I step in or not not because of who you are but because of the world we live in there could be legal ramifications and consequences yeah you definitely you definitely hear stories about you know people get telling doctors to be cautious when to do things in public if they see a situation but I think for the most part I've been fortunate to never have been in that situation at this point in my life but I think for the most part you know, if you see something and you can, you have the tools to to help out in that situation. I think I don't know that it would even cross my mind to to consider the legal ramifications if I did something. Because you know, my my in my mind, I think you know, if I have the ability to to help this person, I, I don't even want to live in the world where I'm going to get sued because I tried to help. You know, mm-hmm. just because I was a doctor. But yeah, I mean, I you know, and going back to to the airplane thing i like you said at the very beginning i'm probably on an airplane with a hooded sweatshirt my hat (laughs) folded over my head and jeans and and some you know whatever i got on my feet some flip-flops or something i'm the last person that people are going to look around and say hey that guy looks like a doctor right let's get him to come out but but yeah i've never been in that spot other you know and i the other thing, going back to the not not to deter you from asking if your your children or yourself needs medical advice, but I do remember when Capri was having a little problem. It's like a year or two ago, maybe two years ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, as a doctor, we see a lot of you know sick kids, sick adults, and okay, you know, my kid's got a cough, my kid's got a little bit of a temperature, she's eating okay, but blah, 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 not herself, you know, and so, you know, we see this day in, day out, over and over and over, and, and, you know, the vast majority of these things, especially with kids, they're so resilient, you know, okay, you know, just make sure she's drinking, make sure she's eating, make sure she's pooping and peeing, and and she'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, when I get a text from you saying, Oh yeah, she got admitted. She's got pneumonia. She's in the hospital. I, 
you know, I felt terrible. I was like, oh my gosh, I told my, you know, I told my friend to keep his baby at home and they didn't need to do anything. And then all of a sudden she's in the hospital with pneumonia for three days and oxygen pumping at her. So I felt kind of bad about that, but that's, you know, that's just how medicine goes. That's, right. you know, it's a good, it's a good point to be said just because we're doctors and we're, you know, we're trained for years and years to identify these things. We can only look at, at the, at the information given and, and make our best judgment call. And at the end of the day, that's not always right. right. And I think people, people have really, you know, you know, the expectations should be high. We are that line of defense. And like you said, that person you have to trust with your health and your life. But so, sometimes that bar is set so high that it's unattainable and you know humans whether they're doctors or not will make mistakes and that's just part of part of medicine and 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 i think some people forget about that right how how are doctors incentivized so it depends a lot of it has to do with kind of your field of practice nowadays for better or for worse a lot of the incentive is production and mm -hmm. productivity so you get paid a certain amount, but what we would consider kind of a bonus, which is a pretty large percentage of your of your overall pay. So it really is a kind of incentive is X's and O's. The more the more patients you see, the more money you bring in, the more you get paid. Mm -hmm. And it, you know that's a whole another hour long conversation I've had debates with people about. And I don't currently I don't feel too good about that because that just basically turns the patient into a number okay i gotta see you know the more of you i see the more money i make what does that lead to i only have so many hours in the day to mm -hmm. see patients that to see more to for me to make more money i have to spend less time with you right. so where do you draw the line you know where do you have where do you draw the line there is the base pay like i always said hey if you don't want a bank teller stealing the money you need to compensate them so they wouldn't have that fleeting thought run through their mind so typically right. for a doctor is the base pay enough to be to make you a cut above yeah you know that's a good question and they I, i'm not i feel bad uh, complaining about my compensation because obviously i'm even as a you know a family doctor i'm in the upper 90 percentile of the united states as far as income so i'm you know i'm blessed and fortunate to be in that position but at the same time i always tell people this kind of relationship when it comes to when people can't understand why doctors complain about their pay is I graduated from medical school in 2014, so six years ago. In that six years, the cost per year of, and this is just the school I went to, you know, every school is different, but the cost of one year's tuition of the school I went to has increased by 60%. Wow. And so when I went, it was already high mm -hmm. and 60% more now it's getting just to the point where people just can't justify it based on the salary that they're potentially going to get practicing. And, and that's pretty terrible to think about when you're talking about a doctor's salary. Mm -hmm. And so, so that, you know, 60% in six years for the, for the education. Now, I've been practicing. In residency, you get paid, but it's it's just peanuts. You know, it's just enough kind of like being an intern. You know, you get a little bit of money so you can live, but it's nothing. But So the three years that I've been an actual attending physician, my salary has gone up 0%. <laughs> so you're looking at, 60, you know, 60% for the education, but 
th- for three years that I've been practicing, I haven't got paid a penny more. The only the caveat to that is the productivity. Mm-hmm. So the the further into practice I get, you know, the more efficient I become, my numbers will go up a little bit. But at the end of the day, that can only go up so much before I start to sacrifice my patients, you know, time with me, my, you know, focus on them. So that's, you know, and that, so I don't consider that a very good percentage increase comparison. So when you're talking about medical students coming out of school after spending, you know, four years in undergrad, four years in medical school, three to seven to eight years of residency, coming out with a quarter million dollars of debt. Right. that's significant burden to put on them. And, and they are starting to see that that's affecting the, you know, the number of trained physicians coming out in, into the workforce. And that's putting stress on all the doctors that are out there now to have to see too many people and not, you know, because only so many hours of the day, some people are going to get left behind. What's an average number of patients that you see on a day? So I'm... Um, I probably, my, uh, if I have a full schedule, I see 25. I probably have about a, my clinic is a little higher no-show rate than most. So I probably, I probably average about 21, 22 patients a day. And, and how long do you spend with each patient on average? So that's a, that's a nine hour work day. Um, so I see, you know, on average, I probably have about, most appointments are anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes long so and me, he, so when you when you take in this i might be cutting you off i might be mm, easy no, to the punchline here but when you take if i if you have a 20 minute appointment with me and you show up at the appointment time you're probably going to spend five minutes with my assistant mm-hmm. getting you ready getting you roomed then i'm going to come in and see you and i'm going to spend as much time as i can with you to a certain extent um, but then I have to consider the next patient that's going to be waiting. And on top of that, you know, this is a, this is something you could relate to. You do a you do a twenty minute podcast with somebody, and what if I told you at the end of each podcast you had to write a report summarizing what we talked about? Right. So after each patient, I have to write a report. Now, you know, these can take anywhere from a minute some of the more complicated ones up to, you know, 10, 15 minutes, depending on how quality of a job I want to do. So that that's also not taken into consideration for us. Uh, you know, when it comes to our hours, people assume, well, my appointment's 20 minutes. I got 20 minutes face-to-face with the doctor. And that's, that's how it should be. But, you know, with all things considered, the way that medicine is now, you really you take that 20 minutes, and you're not. It's not necessarily the whole time with with the doctor. And if it is, then the doctor's running behind, and right. patients get upset. And that is and my. That's where I was. The problem. That's where I was going because most times, and I like my I like my doctor, but most times, hey, okay, we got you. Your appointment's at three thirty, and I get there at three fifteen, thinking, okay, I can knock out all the BS. And then on average, I don't see my doctor. Until if my appointment's at 3.30, I don't get called back until about 3.45, and then I don't see my doctor till about 4 o'clock, right? Yeah. So on average. But when you, oddly enough, when you see your doctor on a regular cadence, like, you know, maybe you're having a bad year or you have something ongoing, 
what I like to tell people is, you know, do your research. First of all, make sure you ask the right questions and listen. Because if you know you have this window, then you can't just go in there willy-nilly. You know, you, you know he's going to ask you, like, okay, uh, what's the problem? How long has this been? So you know certain things. So you need to have your ducks in a row to make his job easier if there is such a thing. That's, you know, you're probably just that inside alone. You're probably kind of in like the 10 to upper, upper 90th percentile of patients of what you can do to help your doctor's day flow and so that you don't in the future have to be waiting that long and you get out of it what you want to get out of it. Mm -hmm. The problem is if a doctor's behind, there's a very, it's kind of a gray area. If a doctor's behind, it's, to a certain extent, it probably is actually a good sign. That means that they're spending the extra time with their patients, kind of making sure that the patient, you know, feels satisfied and comfortable with how what transpired in the visit, that a plan is set up, that the patient's educated on what's going on and what, you know, what to expect and has, has kind of the plan laid out for them until the next time they're due to be seen. But at the same time, you, know, you can't necessarily be having to wait an hour or hour and a half you know i i've seen i've heard of doctors being several hours late and that's just you know that's just unacceptable mm -hmm. but but you're right in that nowadays with with just the patient loads and, and how much extra stuff there is to do you know you're you're probably right your doctor's probably right on average and be in and probably running about anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes behind schedule right. there's pretty good studies, especially in the family medicine, family doctor universe, as far as outpatient medicine goes, that for every hour spent face-to-face -face with a patient, a doctor probably has at least a good 45 minutes to an hour of work on top of that right. to get done. Yeah. So, but you know, that doesn't, that those hours don't show up in our schedule. The, the time we're at the office you know, nine to five or whatever it is, my case, seven to five, you're seeing patients and those extra hours of work to do, you just have to find the time to get it done. But it's definitely not in the 40 that you, that you signed up right. for. In some instances, make up the time when you have Heather the hypochondriac coming back again for the same things. You kind of open the door and you're like, really? Let me back up yeah. a little bit to speak back to the incentives. Now, you kind of told me how you're incentivized. Let's take a step out of your specialty. Are doctors, what does it look like, let's say if you're treating a cancer patient, are you incentivized to prescribe chemotherapy? Um, you know, I can't necessarily speak on that right. with 100% certainty. Mm -hmm. You know, I would, uh, I would be willing to, to say that no, mm -hmm. that's not the case. I mean, when it really, when it comes to the treatment plans there's a straightforward what we call standard of care throughout medicine for you know this is this is the type of cancer you have this is the current recommended guidelines for treatment you know and this is what we recommend so i i don't think that that would be the case but you know at the same time with if i'm a if i'm an orthopedic surgeon or a general surgeon and surgery is where is where they make their money now right. you know you you obviously want to believe that you know and all the guys i know that do that stuff you know they're not going to do an operation on somebody that's not indicated but mm -hmm. are there doctors out there that do that 
Sure. You know, and that's, that's just kind of the unfortunate part about having medicine be a business. You know, right. in this country, medicine is big business. And, and there's all sorts of people with their hands in the pot that want to get some of that money. And so, you know, it makes it, it makes the compensation a fine line when it comes to that. And, yeah. And that, but, you know, and I don't have all the answers for that, but, mm-hmm. you know, when you treat medicine like Starbucks treats retail or Target treats retail and you have the same red and black and people managing books and this and that and you're treating it like a business, where do the patients fall into that? You know, right. that, it's, it's a difficult prospect to make. Yeah, because when, and, uh, when I went to, to my ENT, he gave me the... Uh, the test right there in the office took five days and he's like, yeah, it's benign. So the next conversation was, do we remove it or not? Right. And I'm like, well, it's from my perspective, if you don't have to cut me, then that's a big no for me. (laughs) Right. So he gave me the scenarios of what to consider. And for a minute, it felt like he was pushing me towards surgery. And I was like, well, no, I mean, if something changes, then maybe, but it's not a big softball in my face. It's just a little aspirin. So at this point, if it's just sitting there not harming anything, I'd rather just leave it alone. And then I would like for you to tell me when I start seeing what should I come back in and we revisit this conversation. And I went in with my antennas up because when he started the conversation, he just thought it was going to be a no brainer that I would want it removed. And I was like, well, no, it's been here for 10 years. So. I think he's he's just sitting there sleeping. If he wakes up, you know, I'll give you a call. So, yeah, <laughs> how, yeah, that um, sorry. Yeah, how I guess I'm saying all that to say, what about when we talk about uh, doctors being incentivized? Are you incentivized? Is there somewhere in the medical field where people get incentivized to prescribe? certain medications? So there, you know, back in the day, before well, well before I was a. Uh, a doctor you did see a lot of and there's actually there's a lot of laws about it and legal stuff uh nowadays but you know you'd, you'd have pharmaceutical companies giving mm-hmm. doctors kickbacks and that included you know surgical companies for surgical supplies and this and that for you know med companies saying okay you know prescribe this amount of, of this medication to your patients and we'll give you give you a free trip to hawaii blah 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 this and, that. Right. and you know you don't see that much anymore because it's flat out illegal but going back to the uh, conversation that you had with the ENT, mm-hmm. this kind of ties in a little bit where it's like uh, kind of a legal incentive. You, not a lot of people outside of medicine hear the term kind of we call it cover your ass medicine. Mm-hmm. But so if I if I'm a if I'm a surgeon and I have a patient like you that comes into my office with a with a tumor on his neck, and you do you do a biopsy and they mm-hmm. say okay it's benign. Okay, so you come back in and you see me and you say, hey, it's benign, but, you know, due to the location, it could press on your carotid artery, it could it out bigger, it could cause some, you know, hemodynamic compromise to your brain, you know, we're not sure, you know, we don't, we, you know, basically into the moral story is I can't tell you exactly, you know, I can tell you it's benign, but I can't tell you that it may not cause you a problem down the road. So as me as a doctor saying, I don't want this guy to leave and 10 years down the road, this thing grows into, you know, a major vessel and he has a stroke. Mm-hmm. And they come back and say, why, Dr. ENC, did you not take that out of this patient? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I told him that it was benign and he chose not to do it. I, I, 
you know, basically, in, you know, in medicine, things happen. You right. never know. And so, you know, in the world of litigation and doctors getting sued and doctors actually doing real jail time for neglect and, and malpractice, the, you know, if I see a, if, if I'm an ENT and I see 10,000 of these tumors and one of them grows into the guy's carotid and kills him, it doesn't matter the other 9,999 that I treated appropriately, I got a problem on my hands. So that doctors get very defensive and maybe, you know, and definitely, I shouldn't say maybe, definitely over-treat cases because they don't want to have a bad outcome. Right. And, you know, and that's not necessarily a monetary incentive mm-hmm. from a, I'm going to get paid more, but it's an incentive of knowing that you're not, your, you know, your career and is not going to be in jeopardy. And somebody who used to work in uh, the ER, she was a nurse in the ER, and she told me one time, just random, I don't know, it might have been airport conversation, but she said one question that patients should ask doctors that they never do is, is there a question that I'm not asking you that I should? And she said what that does is it puts the doctor now in the patient's shoes and now they take a minute to think because they're kind of robotic about it, you know, this, that, and the other. But she said if you ask a doctor that question, if there is something the doctor will put himself in your shoes or herself in your shoes and then give you some information that you may not have had. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely a, that's an interesting question. I'll tell you probably, you right. know, patients don't know what questions to ask and what, what symptoms they're having are dangerous or not, and it's our job to be patient with them and, and, and answer their questions the best we can. Here's a random question that you may not have factual information about, but this has always been my little conspiracy theory thing. And the question is, do prescriptions actually expire? So that's part one. Part two, and if they do, is it the date that's on the bottle? Or if you take something, you know, a month late, and I know you're a doctor, so you can't say yes or no, but just, just hypothetically... You know, do they actually expire? And if so, is it how close to that actual date? So I'm, I kind of am in the same boat as you, and I, and I, and still to this day, I, you know, I couldn't, I, like you said, I can't give you right. a, a great answer for this. Uh, for anybody out there listening, I, Doctor Bottomley did not recommend you take that medication after the on-label expiration date. And I confirm that. off the off the off the record. You know, I've I've taken medications well past the date. Mm-hmm. These are types of medications, you know, over the counter stuff, and I couldn't tell you if they were super effective or not. But half the time, I take over the counter meds for certain things. You know, ibuprofen, cough medicine. They don't work half the time anyway for me. But uh, I'll tell you, I never got sick from taking them. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that you know, I will tell you, you know, if I was putting money on it. You know that the effectiveness of a man at some point will definitely, you know, will expire. Right. But I will definitely, I would be definitely willing to bet a large amount of money that it's probably significant time past the labeled expiration date. And I guess that's probably just a safeguard, you know. Yeah, it's you know, get going back to the the legality stuff yeah. and the liability, you know. The everything's got an expiration, and, and and it is what it is, and it's 
it's it's going back to the you know cover your ass. I was actually this is kind of getting off topic. And I don't want to take up too much time, but and I was kind of talking to somebody about the whole COVID stuff and mm-hmm. and how. You know, at the beginning, back in, you know, end of March, April, you see coverage of hospitals and, and these ER nurses wearing trash bags and, you know, the calls out to have the people in the community make masks because we're running out of masks, we're running out of gowns, you know, we don't have the PPE. And you're sitting there thinking, you know, you know, everybody says, you know, the United States, you know, we've got one of the superpowers in the world, we've got this great healthcare system and that's you know kind of the you know that's that's a whole debatable thing in itself but anyway you know how to how are how are their nurses wearing trash bags is basically right. what it gets to it and if you go look in a in a stock room in a hospital and you look at the gowns and the masks which is basically fabric and there's expiration dates on it. Mm-hmm. you know it's like how does a how does a surgical mask expire <laughs> you know, but the thing is, going back to what we hit on before, if you're a hospital and you're a business and you're and part of your business plan is, you know, your dollars and cents, it doesn't make sense for you to stock an emergency supply of a million gowns and a million gloves and a million masks when these type of black swan events only occur once every hundred years. And those, all those things are perishable based on an expiration date. Every five years, you got to go in and throw away tens and mi- tens of millions of dollars worth of PPE. Right. You know, you can't make you, the, the hospital can't make any money stocking for this type of black swan event. So you know, they hardly stock for their normal you know amount of stuff that they need because of the cost basis. And so that's. You know, that's part of the argument about these, basically all of our medical infrastructure in this country being being privatized and having to run on a, on a you know, cost basis. When you get an event like COVID, you really run into a big problem. Cool, Doc. So two more questions for you. One is, what advice would you give someone right now who's considering taking the medical path as a career? <laughs> that's a good question, too, because there's days where I kind of think back and wonder why the hell I chose it. Um, you know, it's it's tough. One of the conversations I have a lot with students and I had as a student with, with attendings that talked to me about the same thing is that, well, at least, you know, when you and I were kids, you know, 80s kids, back then doctors was kind of still one of those, you know, you go to school and you're in fourth grade and it's like, what do I, you know, the what do I want to be when I grow up day? And kind of so if somebody picks doctor or lawyer, you're like, wow, yeah, they're shooting high, you know, that's like top tier, um, you know, and, and, and but a lot of that perspective was kind of based on earning potential. Right. And now, now, you know, again, I'm not going to say I don't make a, a good living and um, not comfortable, but there are so many other options out there as far as career paths to make really good money and, and make the money that I make look like peanuts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, the, ma- the main thing is really don't go into medicine because your dad was a doctor or, you know, because you think you're going to make a ton of money and, and, and it's the only career choice to be, to, you know, to get rich, blah, blah, blah. You really have to go into it because you really want to treat patients and help people's health and, he- you know, help people just live healthier lives. Because it's not, you know, it's really not easy and it can be frustrating 
um, with, you know, everything that's going on and, and kind of the obstacles, just like any career, there's obstacles, but, you know, nowadays with medicine in the United States, there's just, there are a lot of obstacles for practicing doctors. And you see it, if you look at the numbers of burnout, you know, there's a lot of studies that you can find online of doctor burnout, mm-hmm. just Google doctor burnout. And man, it'll come up with all sorts of stuff about how many doctors are just, you know, leaving medicine and can't handle the the hours and the responsibilities and all the extra stuff that's piled on their plate beyond just treating the patient, you and the patient in the room. Like I said, going back, you know, that's just not not all there is to it. But so you have to definitely be in it for the right reasons and not for the not for like you know the the fourth grade. I want to be a doctor type thing, because right. they won't make it very far <laughs> with your sanity by doing it for those reasons. Cool, man. And so my last question to you is the question that I pose to all of my guests. Since you are on the I Am Necessary podcast, what is it that makes you necessary? I think when you sent me the, the question list of potential questions, I think this was the one that I, that I dreaded the most, and I really <laughs> couldn't come up with a, I couldn't come up with a good answer, so I said, screw it, I'll wing it when you ask. Um, you know, because I, I consider myself pretty humble and, you know, I don't want to say, you know, if you need me because, you know, I'm a doctor. I could save your lives. I can do this and that. But, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like I am necessary because, you know, one, there's just not enough doctors out there. And two, there's sure as hell not enough doctors out there that will just, you know, listen to you. And, and some of the, you know, some of the people that know me, you know, they'll kind of laugh a little bit because of all the bitching and complaining that I do about certain things on certain days. But, but the one thing I can that I can truly say is, you know, if a patient walks into my my office room, you know, no matter what they're coming in with, where they've been, what they've done, what's gone on in their life, you know, I I can I can guarantee you I'll at least give them the opportunity to you know to get a to get an unbiased opinion from me. Cool, man, and I can vouch for that because you know you always you know ever since I've known you, you have this caring air about you so for me if i had to guess wouldn't be biology dissecting the frog i just think you just have this thing that's built into your dna that you naturally care about people and i remember i don't know if you remember this you probably do one time we were golfing i think it was at western skies and the guy had the the surfboard golf cart they were rolling out those one-man golf carts to speed up time (laughs) And my man took a nasty turn and fell off the cart. And immediately, you know, me and the other guys were cracking up like, yeah, that's what he gets, you know, trying to be a superhero. But you were rubbernecking the whole time trying to see if from a distance he was okay. And you were playing with yourself back and forth. Do I need to go over there or is he fine? So that just sums up. Like you said, you are very humble, but I know you have that caring peace in you just like what you said makes you necessary that is what makes you necessary and it would be awesome if 60 percent of people in your profession had that kind of gene that you have you know because i think unfortunately you know there are people who are in, in any profession people go in it for whatever reason but a lot of times it's the glitz the glamour the monetary thing and the fact that you would be on a plane and flip flop jeans and a hoodie and not this custom suit and this Rolex watch pretty much sums up the type of person you are. And, you know, I know my family appreciates yeah. you. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. And I'll, I'll, as a disclaimer, I would recommend that nobody ride those two-wheel golf carts. Those things are, are <laughs> hazardous. <laughs> oh, man. Well, hey, thank you so much, man, for taking the time out of your day. Really appreciate you being here. And to everyone listening, Will is a great, great, great guy. I mean, he's a super guy. So thank you for tuning in to the I Am Necessary podcast. This is your guy, Marcel. As always, be needed, be necessary, and I'm out.